Welcome to the Sugar Science Podcast. Our mission is to highlight and connect researchers in the scientific space that connects with type 1 diabetes. I'm Monica Wesley, your host for today's podcast. And today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Matthias von Harreth. He is uh, coming to us uh, down from Southern California and he trained as a physician in Germany. Um, he's now a professor at La Jolla Institute for Immunology in Southern California. And he's also the VP and senior medical officer and global medical um, chief officer at Novo Nordisk. Welcome, Mateus. Happy to be here. Um, I, so we, I just wanted to get a brief history of your interest in type 1 diabetes. Yes. So my interest has uh, always been as, as, as soon as I went into research back already in 91, after some clinical medicine, uh, to understand autoimmune diseases. And uh, as things occurred so, and as we had back then was a big day of animal models, we had pretty good models. And uh, based on that, I picked type one diabetes as my main focus really, because I thought hopefully we could make a difference. We were pretty optimistic back in 1991. We, I think, didn't quite understand how long that journey would be to really tackle the disease because it's so complicated, polygenetic environment and so forth. And uh, that has become clear over the decades, uh, but that's uh, how my commitment came. And uh, I'm, fully committed to that. I really, I really want to make a difference, notwithstanding that advances in type 1 diabetes, depending whether this is a platform or conceptual advance, probably can also be quite uh, helpful for other autoimmune disorders. Yeah, that's well said. And, you know, that kind of comes on the heels of the new JDRF announcement that they are partnering with, um, you know, the Multiple Sclerosis Foundation and the um, exactly. The Lupus Foundation to sort of circle the wagons and start to think about how these autoimmune diseases interact and intersect. Um, so I'm wondering what's going on in your lab? So um, we have, I know, joined Novo Nordisk back in, in early 2012. And the decision was then uh, that we keep in the lab uh, basic pathological mechanisms, so as to not cre create a conflict of interest and not discover any new druggable molecules or targets. So we really study human pathology in, in the lab, and we work with the National Pancreatic Organ Donor Consortium. This was put into life, as you probably know, by George Eisenbart when he was still alive, and now is led by Mark Atkinson, Alberto Pugliese, and a very capable leadership team. And the special thing about this input, as they call it, is uh, this as a, as a wish also for all the organ donors is that the science that comes out of this is available to everybody. It's actually a beautiful experience because it's kind of how science should be, transparent without secrets as an open dialogue. And um, that's what I do in the lab in La Jolla. I, I enjoy this very much uh, because of the atmosphere, the culture, and also of what we finally can learn, obviously, about the human disease. Last but not least, understanding what is different compared to animal models. And because of that, the hope is that uh, everybody, not single groups per se, but everybody can make better therapies as this knowledge is shared in, in a much, as much real time as possible. 
Totally agree. And I think that the uh, drive towards open source, you know, um, materials and open access publications can uh, be a part of that um, solution. I mean, one one additional part, I have to sort of slip it in here because it's dear to my heart. Because of the open dialogue, uh, we actually also share a fair amount directly of negative data. And that's what science doesn't do well in general, uh, at least in the biological sciences. And we direly need it because otherwise we have a tremendous positivity bias. And what is not there, what does not work, what has not worked, what is not the case, all these negatives, they actually make the positives come up faster. We need this. Otherwise, we kind of curse ourselves into some positivity bias. So that that's actually also a very good cultural aspect. Uh, I, yeah, I agree with that completely. You need the, um, you know, you need the backdrop to be able to see the positives in relief. Um, yes. So I think, <laughs> right? So that, and also um, on the sugar science, we are developing uh, a forum tool where people can deposit negative data and comment on it in a Reddit style fashion, basically. So um, we're trying to develop a small repository just as a shout out. Are there any other negative data repositories that you would recommend or share with the audience? And no, it's very it's very difficult. Uh, you can, of course, uh, prior to publication, and we now do this, put things on BioRx, but, but at the end, it, the negative data should also have some form of a quality control and they should have an equal standing also for people careers. Yeah. Because when you start a project, you don't know, is it going to come out positive or negative? I mean, most of the time in discovery, if we all admit it, we're actually wrong. So (laughs) of course it should be out there. And if it's done well, it's good work. And then it's important work. Um, So, so we need to probably more than anything, we need this platforms like you're talking about, and we need to make a cultural transition, right? right? And we have now the internet. Beforehand, it was more difficult if you burned trees and printed pages, you could more understand, you would say, well, we're going to put all this negative stuff all on printed paper. And the journals, of course, wanted to bring the best and most positive. But now we also have a more unlimited amount of space yeah. can access uh, through the internet. And I think we, we should make much more use of that and have yeah. this cultural shift. It's gonna be good for, for science and discovery. Totally agree. Well, we're trying our best with our small repository, but- uh, Super. Thank you. And I think we'll, um, one more thing about the difference between paper products and the internet is, you know, we've, you've got a searchable repository too. So you can go oh, yeah. and say, I'm planning this experiment. Here's my hypothesis. You look into the negative data repository and go, oops, like 10 people have done this and it's not, working well. Maybe exactly. they have some hints for me about exactly. how to finesse this, or maybe I should just not even do it. So, um, okay. And let, while you were at La Jolla, you uh, guys came out with a really great paper, August, 2020, um, interference with pancreatic sympathetic signaling halts the onset of diabetes in mice from science and science advances. Really cool. You did the uh, nerve ablation, sympathetic nerve ablation. You saw there was an inhibition of alpha one ad- adrenal receptors and it protected mice susceptible, not mice uh, to T1D from getting the disease, sort of calming down the resident macrophages and the reactive CD8s. So, and that's obviously due to the fact that macrophages have the adrenal receptors and they respond to catecholamines. But, you know, that's, that's a really interesting angle. And I'm just going to throw that out there now, because when we talk about your other newest paper, I kind of want to circle back to it. So 
I would encourage people to look at that paper, really cool. But so the newest paper- Thank you. Yeah, it's really interesting. And so the newest paper, anti-interleukin-21 antibody in liraglutide, another tongue twister for the preservation of beta cell function in adults with recent adults, humans, in recent onset type one diabetes. So this is a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled phase two trial came out in the Lancet uh, Diabetes Endocrinologies March 1st of this year. And so this is a phase two, 94 site trial with almost as many collaborators. And it's like truly a global effort. So kudos. And the participants were like 18 to 45, newly diagnosed with type one. They follow, they, they got followed for 54 weeks. And then on top of insulin, they were given the anti-IL-21 alone, liraglutide alone, combo or both. Can you comment on the outcomes of the paper? Yes, so, so this large trial is actually has been a long journey. The, the mechanistic groundwork was laid long time ago at La Jolla Institute before I joined Novo Nordisk about some basic work about anti-interleukin-21. And then uh, this is of course uh, a pharma development program uh, to the credit of Novo Nordisk and their commitment to type one. And really the first large scale combination therapy trial, especially in adults with type one, what, type one diabetes. And the outcome of these trials is such that you look at preservation of beta cell function and the surrogate is for this is C-peptide. Yeah. And while the community has probably different beliefs, uh, many of us think, and the evidence for that is rather good, that preserving beta cell function if the, even after diagnosis of type 1 diabetes has long-term benefits. And there's the DCCT and EDIT consortium and who looked at glycemic control, but beyond glycemic control also at complications and so forth, cardiovascular, renal eye complications, right? Yeah. And there's a recent paper from uh, Calhoun in, in, in uh, Scotland that corroborates this benefit. So this, I think this because this was our primary uh, predefined outcome to preserve C-peptide in recently diagnosed patients and then compare this uh, to placebo. The trial was not powered to compare fully uh, between all the arms, but you can see pretty good tendency and trends. But at the end of the day, uh, to make the long story short, while on the drugs, and this is anti-interleukin 21 given IV every six weeks, mm -hmm. and liraglutide given subcute its usual way daily, okay? Mm -hmm. And the liraglutide was chosen, this is Novo Nordisk, uh, one of their GLP-1s, right? And the outcome was that in the patients who received both of uh, the drugs, CPAP pre preservation was significantly better than in the placebo group. And uh, that was a very positive outcome. It's hard to combine, uh, compare it to other trials because other trials involved also children and so forth. So it's not entirely fair to make these comparisons across the board because ours was just adults. Uh, well, just adults, actually, I think it's quite important. Uh, but the C-peptide preservation in the combination therapy was comparable to what had been achieved before. When you stop the therapy, to be very clear, uh, the benefit vanished. 
mm. and rapidly. So yeah. we had not reset the immune system. We had not induced permanent tolerance or anything like that. Uh, you can see that as the glass half full or half empty. I'm a glass half full type of a guy. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, that's fine. Other diseases like hypertension also, your blood pressure goes down as long as you take the meds. You stop taking your meds, definitely the blood pressure doesn't stay down for good. Would be very nice for us. You know, imagine you take a statin one time and then your blood fat values <laughs> are corrected for the rest of your life. But we hadn't reset the immune system with the combination. And the single arms, as I said, although it wasn't powered for the differentiators in the single arms, they hung somewhat in the middle. There was some interesting subgroup effects, mm. uh, notably for me, but these are post hoc, okay? So, but some of them were pre-specified. Uh, notably for me was that in those who entered with a higher C-peptide, mm -hmm. the GLP-1s alone seemed to preserve the function better and those entering in the low C-peptide, maybe consistent, maybe consistent with the hypothesis, that as you will come lower with the C-peptide, even after clinical onset, immune involvement becomes more important and the more you need an immune modulator. But that is still a lot of hypothesis. But I think this is the findings in the nutshell. Reduction of insulin, those came with it significantly, okay? And then there was other trends, not significant at the given power, but a good trend in HbA1c mm -hmm. of 0.4 reduction, and also some trends in uh, avoiding hypoglycemia. Um, I, I think overall, it's a good translational story of validating this initially, finding the target, then validating the combination can work in mice, pressure testing it very strongly and putting it then into a clinical trial and actually seeing the whole thing similar to what has been done with anti-CD3, which actually is a step further than this, to be fair. Yeah. Right. They have shown recent onset benefits, but they are now in prevention where the real value arguably for some of these uh, therapies might lie for patients because you can argue up and down the tree. How is it if you preserve some beta cell function and you still have to take insulin as a patient and so forth, but if you prevent the whole thing altogether, you're not arguing about taking insulin. You get like was for anti-CD3, three, three insulin on average, insulin three years, right? And you could argue that this combination like this would also uh, fit ultimately in the prevention space altogether. Yeah, no, I mean, it seems like there's gonna be some kind of titratable I don't want to say solution, but some kind of titratable, you know, collection of these medications uh, that might be at the next clinical trial and they might be involved. But if I just want to backtrack for a second for uh, liraglutide, that's Victoza, that's the, you know, the pharmaceutical name for it. It's indicated for the treatment of type two, it's an acylated uh, GLP-1 agonist. It's derived from human GLP. And it has like a few roles though, not just to sort of like, you know, not just the focus on beta cells, it, it increases release of insulin, right? But it also decreases the release of glucagon and de delays gastric em emptying. It's, it's very safe, right? It was like the, in 2017, it was the most commonly prescribed um, one of these types of drugs in the US. But so can you comment on like whether or not there was, it wasn't just a preservation of the beta cells or, or can you not get into that with the studies? So, uh, the, the, no, we, we can certainly talk about this. 
Um, first of all, you're entirely right uh, of, of the known and uh, license effects of Victoza and other GLP-1s for type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. And it's not licensed at this point also not for established type 1 diabetes, which is a different story. Yeah, It needs to be worked on. Um, I, I think our hypothesis was, um, and there's one paper that is published by Guzemans and Chantal Mathieu that said that if you add GLP-1s to human islets, you can alleviate their response to cytokine-mediated stress. So we thought that maybe there is other aspects to that. Now, is there, is there not? The proof is still in the pudding. We, we are obviously working on this. Um, I think we are, we are not at the stage where we can claim these type of things. Um, but it's, let's say, an interesting area of work. What additionally GLP-1s can do to, to beta cells. And I think that's all I should say here, because obviously yeah. uh, I'm, I'm, I work for Novo Nordisk. <laughs> so okay. I, you can perceive me as, as conflicted in this area. But it's a very interesting uh, area altogether uh, to work on. And I think... Uh, we we should not stop and overturn a few more stones to fully under understand uh, the these aspects. Some people said about the trial, well, you add these GLP ones uh, and you just release insulin secretory granules. That's not what they do. Okay, mm -hmm. that is known. They they are, they are, they enhance glucose mediated insulin production and secretion. And with that, C peptide falls out. They are just not not just secretor cooks, right? And then people said, well, you exhaust the beta cells, so that's why after you stop the treatment, doesn't work anymore. Well, you can maybe that's true, but the, the evidence really doesn't fully support it because if you exhaust something. You, it means you would break while you're on it, right? If you get, if if I give you an antihypertensive drug and I somehow exhaust a mechanism while you're on this drug, you should get a high blood pressure while I give you this thing, not after I stop it. Obviously, you're gonna get a high blood pressure again. So these are all the mechanistic things about this that are probably interesting and they still need to be understood and worked out. I think yeah, I appreciate you uh, talking to that aspect of it because I think it'll, you know, kind of um, pique some young scientists' interest and and have them think about this further. That it's not just one and done here. This is sort of, you know, it seems to me that a lot of the trials now are are kind of playing the playing the piano of basically of which which drugs may or may not how they work, you know, and it's it's going to be a very um, collaborative effort. I think a lot of the studies will have to be looked at carefully and understood in context. And then that's so true. Right. And then and then from each building block, you go to the next level of understanding. So um, it's just I just think it's, you know, it's fantastic that these are getting out there. Uh, I wondered, you know, so, you know, we we talked a little bit about this before uh, provincial bios going um, after using the CVB vaccine followed by a uh, Diplizumab um, for those at risk of T1D, right? So he's, they're going to try to block people from going into full-fledged um, T1D. 
that's another double regime therapy. You guys had a double regime therapy in a way. Can you imagine, you know, other double regime therapies? And when we talked in the beginning about your bioelectric work, which I think is totally fascinating, could you envision a combinatorial approach with bioelectrics and pharma? I mean, just sort of throwing it way out there. Well, you're hitting on an area that's dear to my heart. I think we were one of the first before, I, well before I joined Novo Nordisk, writing about combination therapies and the hurdles. Uh, obviously, if you have two unknowns, that becomes very difficult for the right reasons, regulatory-wise, right? Uh, because you have to discern who is doing something and who is not doing something and avoid certain interference. Just to be uh, clear, uh, for 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 the audience, so prevention bio has several things that are quite interesting, but not necessarily will they combine the Coxsackie virus vaccine with the anti-CD3. So the anti-CD3 in prevention is actually the first drug showing that prevention of human type 1 diabetes is possible, which yeah. is a tremendous achievement, the Kevin Harold paper, right? Oh, on yes. trial net from mm. Kevin Harold and, and Carla Greenbaum. So, so that's one axis. The, the virus vaccine ties into a whole different area of how viruses might contribute to the disease. We should probably have a different other podcast about this. It's an area where we have also written lots of papers. It's highly interesting. Yes. Um, probably much earlier in the game, in a sense, than anti-CD3 uh, that will be evaluated, at least in the, in the, in, in the US, uh, pretty soon, uh, where, whether it should hit the market, right? So I, I think um that's what they have so you're asking what could be combined if i go back to our old work and kevin harold and i and jeff bluestone we used to work together these topics we combined andy's cd3 actually with several things with antigenic therapies and and we are currently working on making antigenic therapy there's many others of course they're working on that and we had good evidence in animal models that if you induce with an anti t cell agent like anti cd3 and you modulate the t cells it's not like you eliminate them you really modulate them and induce an exhaustion signature that then in an antigenic therapy that induces regulatory cells and maybe other things has a better ground to take hold of. We also had work where we combined anti-CD3 with GLP-1s and so forth. So, so there's many combinations you could think about and really what would be best for the patient. That's at the end what it comes down to. So you, you, somebody tells you you are pre-diabetic or recently diagnosed, and then you say, well, what should I do? Um, if you already went through the screening. And you, if you have a drug like anti-CD3 to take, that's one option. You could elect to only take an antigen or maybe elect to take anti-CD3 then followed by an antigen if this were of a proven efficacy or followed by a GLP-1. So these are the things that need to be sorted out for the patient's benefit yeah. in trials in the future. So that's how I view combinations. And all these players, there is not only limited to anti-CD3, was a recent New England Journal paper with uh, a J&J's anti-TNF that mm -hmm. had a pretty good effect, right? Yeah. We, 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 have to, we have to keep all these things in mind. And we, but one word of caution is, it's not like the more the merrier. You have to test what you throw together. You even should test what you do sequentially so you know what you're doing and whether you have a benefit altogether as to optimize things 
for patients. I think that would be the optimal optimal scenario. And you can get a pretty good idea actually sometimes with some preclinical models, organoids, mice, just to see what works together and what definitely for some reason doesn't work together, even if you thought that would work really well together. But I, I believe, so, so you can then ask, why is the reason for going for combination? One is to hit different angles of the disease to enhance efficacy. And at the same time, because you're hitting different angles, you're trying to not synergize where you would have side effects. So what you don't want to do is give an anti-T-cell agent and then give an even stronger anti-T-cell agent. That would not be the greatest combination. But you, of course, you try to do different pathways altogether. So you wouldn't give one antigenic therapy and another antigenic right. therapy. Right. No, optimally, I mean, optimally, you want to be extremely specific in your your immune knockdown and not, you know, if you can get away, at, you know, from global immune knockdown, that would be fantastic. And thanks for clarifying that with- the uh, Sorry, if I forgot one thing, because you're <laughs> saying specific, the nerves. <laughs> yeah, the nerves. My favorite, my favorite topic. So how, how, how did this come about? We were wondering why this disease in the human pancreas is so patchy. It's very different from the mouse. And, and that's why we started to tinker with the nerves. What was the striking thing in the mouse models in that case is that you can overwrite the autoreactive attack but through innervation. That's not something I expected. So that opens for the possibility, the possibility uh, and hypothesis that similar innervation things account for the patchiness of other diseases or symmetry in arthritis or patchiness in alopecia or patchiness in vitiligo, right? And um, yeah. if that were the case, of course, you would like to get away from systemically modulating the neuronal system. And then you're back, whether that's necessarily easier or better than systemically modulating the immune system, uh, that would be a long stretch, right? Because you could have all kinds of off-target effects. But oh, yes. <laughs> there's now these electrostimulants we, we talked about a long time ago, and they probably have to still come a long way. But there are several companies, as you know, as I know, that, that are working on this. I find this most intriguing. I mean, the ultimate vision is you isolate the right nerve at the right time. You put a little, you know, radio sensor clipper on there. And you start modulating the babies to give you the right tonals in the organ and switch off your macrophages if they get little, tend to get a little bit too excited, maybe yeah. because of your genes or your stress or something, then you tune your pancreas down if it's time and then everything calms down and everything is peachy. That's obviously a music of the future, uh, but, uh, but that would be super cool. Does it have to be combined? Maybe not even in the mouse models, yeah. this stuff overrode all the autoimmune attacks, right? But I know, have to and see. yeah. And I mean, you know, Philippe Blanco and company had the, the paper in 2019, it showed it, your paper exactly. showed it. Exactly. Elliot Durr down uh, at University of Florida uh, in Kevin Otto's lab is looking at it, Alejandro Sakaido. So the wagons are with, uh, we had Medina, um, his grads is postdoc on. And so I think people, the awareness is coming that this is really something, I mean, this could really be something huge and um, it just has to be dissected out exactly, you know, what, what is the innervation of the pancreatic islets? You know, it's different than mouse and human. What, um, you know, uh, there's a tons and tons of work. So I'm just shouting this out here because if anyone 
is a young scientist and they think, oh, well, yes. it's almost all wrapped up. You know, this is a huge area of inquiry and, um, yes. and there's so much exciting work to be done. And, and the coolest thing about this is uh, when you say, where have we made our biggest stride in advances? Technology, of course, has advanced faster than medicine. Not that medicine hasn't advanced at all, but technology has advanced at a warp speed. Yeah. And that, and especially the miniaturization of aspects, which is at the root of many things, including our iPhones and communication More and so. things like that. Yeah, and then you have this miniaturization could be extremely helpful technology-wise to ultimately tackle very selectively certain nerves in the human body. Yeah. And obviously, there's many strides made by in terms of the interface between the brain and organs and limbs and 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 replacing some of the functions, and and this one modulating immune function in an area through the innervation is obviously slightly different, but it, it could in, rely on similar minute technologies that allow this. I find this most exciting. Yeah, you're right. The yeah. people who go in this area, are not only going in biology, but going in biology technology interfaces, this can be super cool. This yeah, is where I mean, at. you know, People like Kevin uh, Tracy have, that have set point have done work in this field with, you know, bioelectric interfaces with RA, which is an immune driven, autoimmune driven disease. And so, you know, that's a whole shop over there on the East Coast. But like even Medtronic has dipped into, you know, heavily into pain modulation. And um, you would imagine, oh, well, maybe there's like some room in their kit for this kind of exploration. Who knows? But um and now just to backtrack with the whole thing about prevention. Yeah, I didn't mean to infer that they, you know, came up with that vaccine, but they have it on their timeline is like, if the patients have this vaccine, then they could be, you know, then, then they're um, at a better, I guess, uh, you know, set point for, for interacting with prevention's products. So anyway, I mean- And, and there's lots of reasons to assume that the, the, yeah. there's the link between enteroviruses being higher in type one diabetes. Uh, for reasons we don't fully understand, is at this point pretty pretty clear for meta-analysis, Maria Craig, and so forth. So yes, uh, you're entirely right. But I think that um, anyway, if uh, you know, rising seas rise all boats, and let's just hope that all this knowledge and information will um, you know connect and uh, interact with the, the patient population that deals with this uh, disease uh, 365 days a year. I would actually just say one more thing that's really exciting and cool is there's a new company we just had a podcast with called um, Immune AI, and they're starting to look at the immune system in these novel ways, taking data sets and trying to use AI and machine learning to um, see spaces of overlap and interaction. So what you're talking about, all these studies, it would be so interesting to see what they can do with those studies. So we'll see. You, you are right about that. And I also had very happy interactions with them. They're super people. Yeah. I agree with you. Us, yeah. A smart bunch of. Yep. <laughs> smart bunch of folks. So yeah. So that's going to be very exciting. Now, I just wondered, so in, as far as your lab goes, are you looking for any team members, collaborators? You know, I mean. Well, I mean, 
I think the uh, that's uh, not right now, mostly for financial reasons, as all these labs are based on grants. And I have to personally say, uh, my wish is that uh, we have to probably modify uh, how we fund science somewhat at some point, because uh, the funding rate of grants is too low to justify the effort that goes into writing them. So we're hanging around 14, 15%, sometimes around 10. Uh, probably also predictably more than just a small fraction of work is valuable. Uh, so we have to find a better equipoise, but that's of course a, a, a big theme. Um, but every time I have to write grants, literally my hair stands on edge because as opposed to many other activities, if these things don't get funded, uh, you struggle to come up with a benefit. You can say, oh, you write a grant, you plan your experiments better. Well, you should kind of plan your experiments well anyways. <laughs> Even if you don't write a grant, you should plan your stuff so you don't shoot blanks and think about it thoroughly. So if, if you put everything, it's like if you make a podcast or you write a big position paper for, let's say, sugar science, and then... You put it somewhere where nobody ever looks at it, not even your family, you know, <laughs> so that, that that's like when you then go home and go like what the benefit of that activity was, that's very limited, right? So, so it's it's a struggle, but yeah. no, I I'm complaining here. I, I have to write some grants. That's the system that we have right now. Probably me in my lifetime, I'm not going to be smart enough to uh, revise that system easily, but it needs some adjustment probably. Yeah, and, uh, I would say that I spoke. We spoke to the Welcome Leap, Leap um, group this morning, and they are trying to uh, expedite some of this, you know, by funding institutions and individuals across the globe and really making um, the deliverables in terms of what's needed once they approve their grant and their their. Um, the work that they're doing, they're identified, they streamline the um, receipt of goods and services. And so it, they're trying to really make that whole process go faster. We'll see how they do. Yeah, and you're so right. I, I used to review, I still do it for the German Excellence Initiative, which is a big initiative in Germany. And, and it's a different type of paradigm. Uh, and probably with many good aspects where you have sustainability because we, we now often use complicated technology, talking about the electrical stuff, for example, if you do something there, right? And once you create this, you need to preserve the, the, these core resources, right? They, they're, they're not easily renewable. So you need to strike the right equipoise between, yes, some competition and evaluation, but also sustainability of a whole enterprise. Otherwise, people get too hassled uh, in, in terms of thinking about new things. And uh, we are maybe a little bit there in overdrive mode right now. And, and 
COVID hasn't helped. It, ha it has helped with the overdrive, but it hasn't helped because everybody had time to sit at home and write grants so and papers. So that, that hasn't helped so much in that respect. <laughs> well, there's a lot of reviews. I'd say there's a lot of good reviews too, though, but um, but there's there has it been a lot of is. reviews. But I think, um, you know, I thank you so much for your time talking to us today. We now have almost 4,000 um, downloads of our podcast. So we're happy about that. Super. We're happy that people are listening. We hope we're doing some kind of um, work in the connective space. That's what our aim is. And, um, you know, we just, uh, we just appreciate all of uh, you scientists talking to us and taking time out of your busy day. My, my great pleasure. Until next time. <laughs> Until next time.